Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 65 of the North Meet South Web Podcast. been quite the week for you and i'm just gonna go ahead and apologize in advance here because you may hear a little two and a half year old in the background saying mommy mommy it's 11 o'clock right now (laughs) and my two and a half year old is still awake somehow wow that's far too loud far too late i thought we were keeping eli up late when he was up to like seven and eight o'clock this week this never happens by the way i might have to get up in the middle of this broadcast and go Hopefully, hopefully he sleeps through once he does eventually get to sleep, though. Yeah, or I'm crossing my fingers here. We'll see. We will see. So, yeah, so it's been it's been quite the week for you. So, Laracon AU this week, mm-hmm. how were all the things? It looked like it went really well. I saw lots of positive feedback from people on Twitter. It seemed like it went awesome. Yeah, yeah, it went really, really well. You know, it's well, you don't know. There are very few people that do know. There's a lot of work that goes into throwing one of these conferences. And I think the the hardest part for me is getting good speakers. And obviously, because we're all the way down here, we can't, we don't have the luxury, Not, but both because of distance, because of um, money and because of, you know, you know finan- well, financing and, and distance are the two main things that, you know, we don't have the luxury of just plucking Taylor and Adam and Matt and Jeffrey and that, and, you know, the, the big the big name speakers every year. So we have to form a really nice balancing act between those big name speakers and not going bankrupt. Exactly. <laughs> so right. Yeah. I think this year, just based on the feedback that I've seen on Twitter and, and the feedback that I saw and heard firsthand at the conference that we picked some great speakers. I think of we had 17 speaker slots. Of the 17, we had eight first-time speakers, which wow, I didn't seriously? really count on. Yeah, I didn't really count it until the the afternoon of the last day. I went back and looked at because I knew that we had a few of them, but I thought it was four or five. Ended up being eight of our 17 speakers were first-timers, and let me tell you, they were all terrific. That's um, amazing. They were they were they were confident. Their ideas were brilliant. Their presentation was was flawless give or take a, a couple of technical issues which we had um you know right at the beginning of talks where slides didn't play and things like that sure. but even the most, yeah nothing you can do about that that happens to everybody right yeah happens to everyone so all of the feedback that i heard from all of these speakers was terrific um and and not only the eight first time speakers but we also had five speakers that are not or weren't until now part of the laravel community so it was really nice to be able to bring them in and uh and give them a, a place and a to to share their ideas. So everything went really well. All of the, as I said, all of the speakers were great. That's awesome. I know that uh, like one of the things that I always say, like with teachers, because so I'm a formally trained teacher, but um, like mm-hmm. new teachers, like what they lack in experience, they make up for an excitement, right? They like mm-hmm. it's like their first year. They're so excited. They've got so much energy, and they're so positive about their outlook on like you know, how teaching is going to go. They've got all these ideas, whatever, as opposed to like yeah. teachers who have been in there for like 30 years and they're just like, it's another year. They're just trying to get a paycheck. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, whatever. Yeah. So with new speakers, I'm sure that's some of it, right? So they have a little bit of less experience. Maybe they haven't, you know, they haven't really learned what works and what doesn't, but man, they're so excited and like, they're so, you know, pumped to be up there and they've put a ton of work into these slides and whatever. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. I'm sure yeah. that actually probably, um, really helped with like the energy level too. You know what I mean? People really excited to yeah. get up there and give their first talk. So that's awesome. Yeah. And the nerves for most most people go away after the first couple of minutes. And once you hit your groove and you, you know, you remember you've practiced, you've put these slides together months in advance and, and you've been practicing them over and over and over again. And I know that several of the speakers caught up with each other once they were all in in Sydney and and you know gave each other their talks and they got oh, that cool. feedback beforehand idea, yeah. so it was really good I think some of them stressed a little bit about their slides and things like that but they're all they're all really good and I can't wait to see where they go 
you know, in the future. There's a couple that I've already said, definitely submit to other conferences. I've had a couple of people reach out to me and say, you know, who? Who are the people that spoke at AU that that we should try and get elsewhere? So I'm looking forward to see how things pan out for them in the future. And I think I, I feel, and, and from the feedback that we got, you know, we, we had a really supportive environment for those first-time speakers. And I would love to be able to do it in the future over and over again to give people a platform to launch their speaking careers. Because some people, you know, you speak at a meetup, but it's a little bit different to speaking to a room, you know, 200 people sure. full of developers. Yeah, totally. Yeah, giving a room to, giving giving a, giving a talk to a room full of developers is definitely a little bit more nerve-wracking. Right? I'm sure yeah. the um, the imposter syndrome is just through the roof right, when you're having to talk through yeah. to a group of developers. But man, you know, you yeah. said like, you're not able to get Taylor or whatever, but man, you still had some really solid sp- I mean, you know, experienced speakers, I guess is what I'd say, like people who yeah. are, who are pretty well known yeah. in the community. So you did have a really, really solid lineup. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 We, I mean, and we still, we will always aim to have four international, you know, keynote ish speakers and we bookend each, each of the two days with those speakers. So we start the conference strong. We finish the conference strong on, on each day. So, and then, you know, I want to keep it local. I know that you know, the US speakers can speak in the US any year and the EU speakers can speak in the EU any year. And as we go over time and we start to, um, you know, build positive experiences for the speakers and welcome new speakers in and and word gets around that hopefully, you know, we're putting on a a good conference year on year that speakers talk to each other, I'm sure, and, and they say which conferences that they enjoyed being at and which conferences they wouldn't speak at. So, you know, in time, I hope to be able to have more and more of those positive experiences for our speakers and we you know we look after them i think and yeah i'm sure over time the word will get around you're just, you're just gonna have to figure out how to get free refills for your speakers and then you should be all set i think that's the only complaint yeah. adam has so yeah, yeah outside of that you should be okay he's canadian but he's a closet american yes oh yeah he loves america like he would be an american if he could be i think yeah which is so funny in uh, Rocket League, we play Rocket League every once in a while, and for a while he had like an, a, a car that had like it was just decked out in American flag stuff. Like it had a big <laughs> Uncle Sam top hat and red, white, and blue, and it was hilarious. It was good, good times. It's overboard, I know. It's overboard. He's so funny. So, um, yeah. So it, it all went well. Uh, all of the talks were recorded. the The production crew will hopefully manage to edit most of them this week. And then we'll get them into the hands of the speakers so the speakers can have a look at what they look like if they if they dare review there, especially some of the first timers. They might be a bit scared to I know that when we started doing this podcast, I really hated listening to it. Oh, it's um, the worst. It's yeah, the worst. You come back to it. I hate listening to them. Not well, not as much, but Yeah. <laughs> now it's a lot better. We sound a lot more experienced and a lot more like what we know I think, we're talking about. I think so. the difference is that when you first start and this is probably the same with speaking too is that you feel like every pause needs to be filled with an um or <laughs> something like that hang on a minute yeah hang on a minute <laughs> your side of this conversation is still like that well, 3 years later well it's close it's close i will have, i will say it's definitely gotten a lot better it used to be more like um so i um and um um like you know, used to be way more like that. And I think yeah, we've both, and you know, anybody who's been doing it for a while, it's, I think you just learn to talk slower. So your brain has a little bit more time to process instead of trying to talk at like a regular, I don't know. I don't know if conversation. I try, and, I try and be conscious of the um. And when the um is coming, I consciously try and leave it out because it's much easier to see an empty spot in the waveform and cut the empty out than it is to cut around an arm. Yeah. Now, you don't get the luxury of that when you're speaking, obviously. Sure, but right, right. For, for podcasting, then, you know, that, that's the that it's the next thing. And then because you become conscious of one filler, you start throwing in other fillers. I know that my new one that pains me every time I hear it is, you know. Mm, I know what you mean, you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. I think everyone had a ton of fun. I think the 30-minute time slots were yeah. perfect. So we had, on the first day, we had two talks. Then we had a 15-minute break. We had another 
two leading into lunch or three leading into lunch. Then we had like an hour and 45 minutes for lunch and then two and then two. And then on the second day, it was two, two, two and two with breaks in between. So I think that was perfect. You get one one presentation, you get straight into the next presentation. We did no Q&A. The, the feedback that I saw again around that and, you know, it was Frank's idea for full stack EU and then Taylor adopted it for Laracon US. I think 30 minutes is the perfect time slot. Yeah, I do agree. In terms of get on, say who you are, get straight into the meat and potatoes of your talk and then off the stage yep. and, and bring on the next speaker. Yep. And it and it keeps you engaged because around 30 minute mark is when yeah. you start sort of Yeah, change topics. Off. Yeah, change topics. Get on with it. Yeah, exactly. I do agree. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah, keeps everyone engaged, keeps the ideas fresh. For me personally, it's... It, it's really hard. Um, I, I loved it. I loved emceeing last year and I, I loved it just as much this year in, you know, getting involved with the crowd and getting involved with the speakers. And But it's really mentally taxing because I try, I, I don't take any notes. I've got like one line saying who the speaker is and I've got one line to introduce the topic itself and then everything else while the speaker's coming on stage and plugging in and getting set up is working in the previous talk and and things that they had. So it's like, because I'm running around like a blue-ass fly organizing and getting people ready and, and you know, chasing up other organizery type things. And, you know, in future, as the volunteer base grows, which did this year, we had six or seven, I think, different volunteers helping out. But, you know, being able to pick up key things from... A presentation and working that into the intros it just makes everything feel much more organic and keeps people awake i think yeah keeps them engaged so, in between yeah yep yep that's cool but in terms of like everything it just it just went smoothly the, the venue we're at and the staff that are there are perfect they keep everything on track they make sure that people get in and out when they're supposed to now were, so, were you able to use the same venue as last year yeah yep keeps it easier yeah so it, it does, and I was very surprised that we didn't have a huge number of return attendees. I think it would have been about a 70-30 split this year, which was interesting to me. So I wonder what we did wrong last year that, mm. that made them not want to come back, or maybe they were just too slow to buy their tickets this year. Yeah, that's... I think part of it is that that we didn't have you know Taylor and all that, and, and that's just something that's going to have to be the way it is just because of our size and as I said at the start, our size and, and finances and things like that, it's not we're not we're nowhere near the scale of what Laracon US is, knowing how much, you know, time and money went into that. But you're only on year two. And I remember year two for Laracon yeah. US and it was not that big. Yeah. It was not that big. And so. this is this is where giving fostering good experiences for attendees and for speakers. And once as I said at the start, once the word gets around that that we do have a a good experience and we and you know re and i put a lot of time and effort into making sure that happens for our speakers anything we can do to accommodate them in terms of travel or or accommodation or, or whatever you know we try and do our best uh, because really if if not for the speakers there is no conference correct yeah no there's, there's no point having 200 people in a room if you're not going to have people to speak to them and and put on good good quality presentations and the the, the more you look after your speakers the the better it is for the audiences and the more likely you are to attract more speakers in future. So it was all a, a, a balancing act for us this year, but I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And, uh, you know, I said to the cash money, I'm just going to crawl into a bowl for the next week or two before I start thinking about next year. Seriously. Yeah. You, you got to take a little break here. <laughs> as long as you have the venue, like sort of like reserved a little bit, you know, uh, for next year, you've got yeah. time, you've got time. Yeah, that is one thing that does make it easier is if you have the event, if you know you're going to be at that venue next year, that'll be. Yeah, yeah. That's, I know that's a big part of it for Taylor every year, right? It's like figuring out where the venue is going to be. Then it's like budget for that. Then it's new vendors. Then it's new. All that stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're fairly limited. When I say limited, I say limited in terms of cities. I, yeah. I wouldn't go to Melbourne just because it's that little bit further to travel. Brisbane. I don't really know anyone there. I don't have any contacts on the ground that I can, you know, rely on to to help me put on a good good conference. My hometown is is too far away from anything and Perth would be really good, but I don't have the quality of connections there either. So, it's probably going to be Sydney again next year. Um I spoke to the the venue we're at and I said, "Look at the dates that you've got free 
you know, next October. So yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I don't think it's a bad venue. And as it's a it's a two hundred and thirty seat venue that we can expand up to three eighty. And I honestly, I don't want the conference to be any bigger than three eighty anyway. I think you know, once you start pushing that size, it's just lots of people moving around. It's it's too hard to keep everyone on the same page kind of thing so it can be done it's just a ton more work yeah Mm. yeah you have to but year on year we improved our uh our speaker lineup in terms of you know representation and and i hope to improve on that and get closer to a 50 50 split again next year so that's really important to us as well to make sure that we're you know we're not just putting the de facto people on stage every year yeah Yep, give a couple other people in the community a chance and uh, people from the outside too. It's obviously super helpful to have that that uh, other perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome, man. Well, good job on that. What about you? What did you get up to in the last? Oh, gosh. Yeah, thanks. Dude, this was like a week from hell. I'm not kidding. Like my <laughs> my wife, Laura, was even just like, oh, my word, it's been a day every week for you or every day this week. I was like, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, it's been. Yeah. So we have been messing with uh, SAML authentication so Mm -hmm. federated access as it were so quick long long story short of that is essentially if a company who has their own identity management stuff be it active directory or they use auth zero or there's a million of them out there right but they manage their own user access and privileges and stuff like that internally somehow uh, they want to use that same identity provider essentially to log into your application. So that's fine. Uh, it's very similar to what it would feel like with if you're logging in with GitHub or Facebook or something like that, right? So you basically detect a user from their system either by like an IP address. So you say, oh, it's coming from this IP address. I'm going to, I know that's, you know, Michael's company. What's the name of your company again? Superloop. Superloop. We'll use that as an example. Oh, looks like that's an IP of Superloops. I know that's them. So I'm going to go ahead and redirect you with an authentication request over to your portal where you will log in. And so uh, the nice thing about that is that your credentials never leave your network. The user credentials that are put in, your username and password are always being put in on your network. And so they never get passed over the line anywhere except for in, you know inside your network. And then once you've been authenticated inside your network, then uh, your identity provider will create a response request, sign it with a private key, and then send it back over to an endpoint that I've specified. My my side will then check the signature, make sure that it's good, and then we'll say, okay, uh, grab me whatever piece of identity if I've asked for, probably email or something like that, as well as any other information that you've decided to send over along with it, and then either uh, sign you in or create your user, however you want to do that, uh, and then you're all set, sign you in to the application. So works, nice. yeah, works great. Really, really cool. Pretty awesome. It was not that difficult to implement, actually. The process itself is very simple. Very, very simple. Mm-hmm. And there's a library out there, a really good library. I'll have to find the link and, and we'll post it in the show notes. There was two different two different SAML libraries we found, but one of them was definitely far easier than the other. It handles creating all the routes that you need. It handles encrypting and decrypting all the XML stuff. It's Or not encrypting, I'm sorry. Uh, signing and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. basically creating the payloads that go back and forth. So really simple, super nice to set up. So got that all ready to get deployed, deployed that on Monday night. Everything's hunky-dory, no problem. Well, Tuesday morning, it's not. Tuesday morning is bad day. And the reason why is because we have this reverse proxy that sits in front of this application. And it was just a mess all day Tuesday all day. So I rolled it back on Tuesday night. I'm like, forget this, not doing this anymore. So gave it to the other guys, the IT guys. And basically was like, you're going to have to figure this out. Cause I'm, this is not my wheelhouse. This is not what I do. I don't know. Like, I don't know. You'll let me know when it's ready to go. So yeah. I handed that off to them because that was just a nightmare. And then on Wednesday, we have an RDS. We're, we're testing, pushing a bunch of stuff to RDS because we were having we had a local database server that was having some issues and we were having to like start doing tuning and stuff on it. We're like, you know what? Like we don't have a uh, DBA here. Like it would just be cheaper to just pay RDS to handle this for us. And then we don't have to have like, you know, it has snapshot backups every minute kind of thing. It's just like, it'd be really nice. So we're pushing things to RDS. Well, two of them 
the two apps that we had on RDS, RDS just decided to go down on Wednesday Ugh. for for some reason. Yeah, AWS had AWS had a whole, yeah, whole they, bunch of issues this yeah, week they with did. different things. Yeah, they did. Uh, and, and with that issue, actually, with that, like SQS went down or something. And, you know, mm-hmm. Taylor had that whole deal, whatever. And, and, and it was weird because... I think what they, he was like, yeah, it's not working, but their dashboard, Amazon's dashboard was like all green. Everything's good. And it's like, no, 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 yeah. it's not good actually. And so we had some of a similar situation where RDS was just down, just stopped working. Dashboard's all green. Everything's working fine. And it was down for like an hour. And then all of a sudden it came back up. So we're freaking out the whole time trying to figure out like, is it us? Like, are we, what's going on? What's, you know, and yeah. then all of a sudden it just comes back up. So it's like, well... <laughs> I guess I'm glad we didn't move yeah. everything over there at once, but I'm hoping this is just one of those like, okay, once every three years you get these weird instances where like AWS just starts to flake out or whatever, but man, hopefully that doesn't happen often or else obviously that's going to be a big problem. So we'll see. That, I mean, that is the downside to to relying on Amazon is that when it, I mean, it's no different to Amazon going down or your own 10 right, going which down. it did someone which, still has know, to fix it ours has gone down it's just that when you mm. when it goes down internally you can at least say oh we're working on it we know what's going on with aws you don't yeah. really it's just kind of like okay yeah so you just kind of have to have a um a fallback plan in place so you know mm-hmm. my fallback plan is like okay i have local backup or not local backups but i have like backups in some location where i can quickly snapshot restore those to a local database and change the address and something you know what i mean if yeah. i really needed to yeah. So, yeah, that was it was a mess, dude. It was just a it was not a good work week. It was a bad week, uh, so that kind of stuck. <laughs> but the good thing about good thing about weeks is they end, yes, and then you can try all again next week. Yeah. That being said, though, I did get to work on then ping me for a while, which was really fun. I did see. I didn't get a chance to look too much at at what you were doing, other than the the high level notes that you were sending me on Telegram. Yeah. Yeah. So. So basically, we have the structure in place that you, you've been working a lot on the package and getting the getting the project like set up from like step one. So logging mm-hmm. in and then basically we create a project for you automatically and then give you the directions to get that project up and running, which is essentially, essentially Composer install the package, run this command, and then all of your tasks will just appear in the dashboard there. So that's good. So I kind of took on the next piece, which was, okay, how do we handle when a task pings in? And so we have three different types of payloads that will come in. We have a starting, a finished, and a skipped. So the starting mm-hmm. and the finished is just what it sounds like. If the task started, if the task finished, and then skipped is if you have a job that is scheduled, but it has some conditional rules around running or not. Right. So if you have like a yep. when method on there. A truth it, constraint. They a call truth, it, they call okay. It. A truth constraint. A good, yeah, that's, that's what it would be then. So... Um, you can check, right? You can pass in some closure and if it mm-hmm. returns true, then it'll run. If it returns false, it won't. So skipped is just another payload that we might accept. So I created rules for, or not rules really, but you know, how do we handle those things? So there was a couple challenges. Number one is we're using webhooks like Spassi's webhooks package, which is good. It's just I've never used it before. So there's a couple pieces to it that were new to me that I haven't done before. Mm-hmm. But like you said, like, and you teased me on Twitter, you're like, you really hate signing those payloads, don't you? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you do. It's just funny. Which was surprising because you were just talking about doing SAML and, well, and all of that signing that you're doing. Yeah, literally. That was like, you know, it's, and I said on Twitter too, like, it's a new experience for me. Like, I've never done signing of payloads or anything like that. Like, mm-hmm. I always just protect routes with like an API key or something like that. But yeah, you know, a user API key. Uh, and a, a token guard with Laravel. Mm. But signing the payload is, is fine too. Here's my question. So like we signed the payload, fine. If somebody just modified like the vendor package stuff, right? They could send anything they wanted though, right? I mean, we can verify that it's coming from... You verify the payload, but the signing key has to be the same on both sides. So we, as part we of the, the setup... UUID, right, is the signing key, right? For the setup, it's the UUID. But we also, as part of that setup, generate the signing t- key to use for all subsequent requests and that gets stored with the user. So the user creates the payload, we sign it on the client side with the package and that gets sent across with the, with the signature in the, in the header. And then on our end, we make sure that the signature matches what we generate for that payload. So we take, we basically happens on both sides. We take the, the array, we JSON encode it, 
we do a, a hash of that to get the signature using the signing key. And when it comes, so that's all in the package on the client side. And when we get the payload, we know what the user is, right? Because it comes to their sure. project. We get the user's signing key and then we do the same thing on our side. And then we make sure that the signatures match. So that that means they can't modify it in flight and, and all that kind of stuff. So if you change the signing key on your side and it's different to what we have within the the SaaS side within the server side, then we'll be able to say, you know, well, that's not a, a valid payload. So that's sure. why we give people the yeah. option to obviously update that signing key later as well. Yeah. I think what I'm saying is the signing, the signing of a payload really only prevents like man in the middle attacks. Mm. Is that right? And it, I mean, it prevents invalid payloads from being sent as well. Mm. Does it though? Cause, because all you have to do, all you have to do is just have the correct signing key. You don't like, so what I'm saying is if they have the correct signing key, but they go into mm-hmm. the package and they say, yeah, remove this key. Don't send that key along with a starting ping. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I can't say that like 1000% for sure. Like just because a payload is a valid because they signed it with a key that I shouldn't ever have to validate anything on my side of things. I actually still no. do. And, and the signing of the payload is not, not to say that you don't validate what's in the payload. Yeah. The signing is just to validate that the person that should be sending that payload is sending the payload. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. So what well, yeah, I guess I guess we I'm still saying. have to make sure that the keys are there, mm-hmm. that you know the right types are there, right. that they don't send like some arbitrary string that we don't know how to handle. Exactly. Um, yeah. that they don't remove a key that we're expecting. Because yeah. that so, would still then because that would then go to the secondary layer and that's where we would send back a well, we wouldn't send back a 422 at that point. Well, th- we could. We could send back a validation error at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is like the signing of it really is, it, it protects the user from somebody modifying their quest in flight, is, is, as mm. you called it. But it doesn't really, it doesn't give us any conveniences. It just makes sure that yeah. well, it, we have it an authorized user. It means that we don't have user. to worry about, yeah, it means we don't have to worry about API keys and all that kind of stuff. Sure. It's... And and it means that you don't have to authenticate with an API. You don't have to cycle the keys, whatever all that other stuff is. You know, it's how it, it's it's quote the way to, or probably the most convenient way to do webhooks between applications. So we do still sort of have to manage a key, right? Because the key that we we generate a key when the composer install the package or when they run our command once mm. they once they do that, yeah, which right? is the signing secret. But it's all a hands-off thing. It's, they don't have to come to us and do that. They can come to us if they want to change it at any point in the future. Mm-hmm. It's just the convenience that we pre-generate it and, and set it up so, as part of the, so when the project they, setup. Yeah, so when they actually go to deploy and they need to know what to put in their ENV, do they have to grab that from their ENV or how does that, like what's the story look like for that? So the way that we do it currently is we set it in the ENV when they install the package. Now, right. you're probably installing the package locally. Locally, Yeah. Um, so I'm not really sure the, the best scenario there, whether you change the key or... Because then, you know, they're going to have that same key for their local environment as their production environment and so on. So and we're just checking, but we, we have the package will just keys. check to make sure that like they can't do a starting ping or ending ping or anything. I think we, we talked about that saying like, you can't actually run something from production or from a non-production. We won't accept. We won't listen for those. You won't listen for like schedule. I mean, tests. I think we can. You may. You may have a staging environment that you want to still monitor. I, th- I think we still log the pings that they come in and just flag the environment that it's from. Okay. And by default, only act on things that come from production. Interesting. Okay. That's. Uh... I mean, it's possible. We. You could just make it a configuration thing that says, you know, log all pings or only log pings for production or only log pings from these environments. I think by default, probably just production only anyway, at least when we when we ship the sure. initial version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in, in figuring out kind of what that looks like because we'll have to probably talk about that like with the user, right? We'll kind of have to explain to them like, hey, when deploying to production, here's how you deploy to production. Take the key that was generated in your setup in the, in, you know, in your .env and mm-hmm. bring that over to here or you know here's your signing secret like we'll give that to them yeah. at, and like in the in the app or something right mm-hmm. um, i mean there's there is no reason like they could in uh, they could in composer require the package locally and then 
run the setup command in yeah. production. That yeah. works. True. And we we detect if you've got cached configuration. When we write the the variables to the environment, we will also recache the config. So the only thing we won't do is restart npm uh, fpm rather. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you know, there's a few approaches to that. I think there's probably a a command that we could create that that you'd run when you do it on deploy. Like we talked about this at last episode where yes. we create a command that you run as part of your deploy to update your tasks and, and whatever else. The other thing I was thinking about, which is interesting, is um, you could do that too with like a GitHub action. So if you use GitHub actions, which is still in beta. I try to. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And um, all of all of the then, then ping me test failed when I enabled it for some reason. Oh, really? Yeah, so but only in in GitHub Actions, it was fine in in um, Chipper, and it was fine in Travis. local. It's just oh okay, a whole bunch of stuff broke in GitHub Actions. Yeah, so like in like so we don't use GitHub Actions right now for testing. Like we use all our testing stuff in Travis and all that, and it's fine. But you can have you know, like so Sentry for example, you can create releases when you push code uh and then so then you have to when you deploy the release you then have to let them know that you're deploying it to a to an environment like to production environment so you can create the release ahead of time the thing that you have to have to create the release in Sentry, though that makes it the most useful is you have to have the sha of the most recent commit that you're pushing and then you have to have the the sha of the shahs of all the commits in between the last push to production and the push to production that you just have now. So like for example, mm-hmm. if you're merging and you're merging in 10 new commits, it wants to know about all those commits and who was responsible for each one of them. And then what Sentry mm-hmm. can do is it can intelligently say, oh, you it looks like you had an error on this line in this file. Who was the last person to push that? Oh, looks like that was Michael Dorinda. Okay assign that task to him. He's the one who should be able to figure this out because he changed that line, right? Well, Envoyer, Laravel Envoyer does not know anything about Git history because it just downloads a tarball. It just It's a zip, basically, and then yeah. it expands yeah. it and installs it and no, prob- no, you know, no big deal. But it doesn't know any of that stuff. Well, GitHub does. So when we push to master, we have a GitHub action that will say, go you know, do the Sentry CLI and then use our key and it has a spot for secrets in GitHub as well. So use our key and go ahead and push up all the commits and you know tell Sentry that we're creating a release. And then in Envoyer, the only thing you have access to is the most recent SHA. So in Envoyer, then we will say, go ahead and deploy that release in Sentry. So we just tell it, here's the, here's the SHA signature, deploy that, we're deploying that release. And then it does mm-hmm. that. So that's, that's cool. But in GitHub Actions, we could say, you know, if you have that, we could just, say update all our tasks, it would just look through your, your scheduler and push any new tasks up to then ping me. Yeah, That would work too. I mean, yep. again, it's like just coming up with all the different tools and ways that you can do that, whatever's going to be most convenient for your users. And that's definitely down the road as we have people who make those requests. But yeah, but anyway, the, we'll, so the we'll web put them hooks, into a clubhouse project. Yes, there we go. Exactly. So <laughs> The, the webhooks thing was interesting for me. So that's spicy and they do a good job with that. But then after that, it was, okay, we can create a, you know, check-in for the task, no big deal. But it was, how do we, how do we want to handle those? So we're creating a ping record for every time we have something that comes in. And once a starting ping comes in, it will also update the next run at on the task. So with that, and we have the same problem with our current dashboard, which is that if you just set the next run at time to be the actual next run at time, if your job has not finished by the time that comes around and you're checking to mm-hmm. see if there's any missed tasks, it will erroneously alert you to say this task is missing. When it's not missing, it's just currently running. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if it runs... And I... Yeah. I think you wouldn't set the next run at until the task finishes but it depends i suppose it will depend on whether or not that task is set to run without overlapping because the decision is different based on that logic if you've got it set to not overlap then the fact that it misses a check-in should raise a warning that's like hey your task is running longer than the interval between runs Mm -hmm. so i don't 
I don't. I think that's a different kind of alert that hey, you're running this every one minute, but yeah. your task is taking seventy five seconds to run. Yeah. If the task is not set to be without overlapping, then that's a more critical thing, right? That it's it's going to run every minute, but it's taking more than a minute to run. Yeah. So, so I think there's there's different if- there's different logic there depending on whether or not they have done that and and different notification required depending on whether or not that's being used because yeah as i said if if you've got something runs every minute and it starts running at say like 308 p.m right so it's just started running and we've got the start ping the next run at is 309 p.m yep but if we don't get the finish before the next start then we need to say hey this task has taken too long to run if we get the finish if we uh if we get another start, what did I just say? If we get, if we don't get the finish before the next start, well, yeah, I think that's that's it then, isn't it? If we don't, if we get another start before we have a finish, that's a invalid state, yeah, because you shouldn't. And that, and at that point, we would say unless without overlapping is true, yeah, or unless yeah. with unless they're allowing overlapping, yeah. If you're saying this doesn't have without overlap, like if if the task does actually overlap, then that's one error. If the task doesn't overlap, but we miss a check-in, then we say, hey, there's a problem here. Your one-minute task is taking 90 seconds to run. Maybe you should increase the time between pings, Yeah, uh, between, so, between runs. So the logic I have right now essentially is this. Once the task has started, I am now going to say it's not missing. The task mm-hmm. isn't missing. It actually started. So that's not yeah. the case anymore. So as soon as I get a starting ping, I say set the next run at. And again, basically the first issue I wanted to deal with was like, okay, the next run at, I can look at the cron expression that comes in and figure out when the next run at is going to be. And the other part with this was too, it was time zones, like making sure that the time zone that they are sending it in through, we convert everything to UTC and make sure we store the timestamp of that. We need to store it in UTC. Mm-hmm. So basically look at the now in their time zone and then generate the cron expression for what it would be in their time and then convert that to UTC because that's important so that we can store it in our side and make sure that everything's consistent uh, for us. Yeah. So doing that, but again, you don't want the, the way that I want to check to see if something is missing is I want to look through all the tasks and I want to look at the next run at. And if the next run at is in the past, it's in an error state or it will be fired into an error state, right? We will move it from a passing task to a missing task well that would depend on the state that it's in at the time that you check right if the next runner is in the past and the and the job is still running that's a problem so but if the this, next this is, runner this is, how is in the past yeah so this is how i've yeah. gotten this so so i'm what i'm because there's basically three things so the way that i'm the way that i'm making this work is if the starting comes in soon as starting comes in i record that ping and i set the next runner on the task so it says, mm-hmm. as soon as it starts, if it's supposed to run in another five minutes, go ahead and set the next run at. Now I'm never going to, it's never going to cause an alert to come in because I've already mm-hmm. got the start. And so don't worry about it, right? So at that point, it transitions from being a task is missing to a, okay, now I've got a ping that's out here that's set to starting. And then I set a expires at on that ping. So that starting mm-hmm. ping has an expires at timestamp and we can now check for any starting pings that have expired. So if you have an expired ping, basically, which doesn't have another, doesn't if the if it's just open, it's been running for too long, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. we can let them know either you have a long running job or it never reported back or this is something you're going to want to check on. Yeah. And we can we can alert that way. Of course, at that point, again, you have some of this overlapping versus non-overlapping. You have default grace periods. How long do we allow for a job to run before we tell them it's a long-running job? Um, you know, And some of this is going to be based on the data that we gather once we start getting pings in. So we'll be able to determine here's the average amount of time it takes to run. What we had basically said initially is we, we said we would take the difference between what time it is right now and what's the next time it's scheduled to run. So if it runs every four five minutes, we said we'd take 80% of that time, which is four minutes, and we said we'd allow it to be open for that long before we alert them to say, hey, you have a job mm-hmm. that's taking too long kind of thing, right? So there's a missing task alert. 
there is a long-running job alert, and the long-running job alert, again, kind of depends on if you say overlapping or not. But that's how that works. So that's yeah. that's the situation. So what I was saying about the next run at is ideally the easiest way for me to do this is to be able to look at the next run at timestamp on the task and see if it's in the past, then go ahead and alert. The problem that mm-hmm. you don't want to do is if the task has not yet started to like, you know, there could be just slight, slight differences. Like I know for us, like it runs at, like I was looking at the logs of some of our stuff. It, like if it's supposed to run at 11.05, it'll run at 11.05.04, right? Four seconds yeah. after 11.05. Well, I don't want to say it's it's in a failed state if it hasn't pinged into me by 11.05, right? That's, mm. you've got, it takes time to... Especially if you have a lot of... Yeah, if you've got a lot of tasks that all... If you've got five or six tasks that all run at every minute... Exactly. Then, it, you know, it might take... Because the, the scheduler will loop over the commands that are due to run sequentially. Yeah. So it could be a few seconds before it gets to the, the one that needs to run. So you need to know what the, you know, what the lead time is on when it's actually late. Yeah. And so- you could say it's late after... 15 seconds after 30 seconds. Yeah. So what I did is I if set If you've got a, a default... task that runs every minute that's late after 30 seconds, you could have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So right now what I have is I have a default grace period of 60 seconds. We can change mm-hmm. that because it's also it also accepts an argument to say you can pass in whatever. So if you don't pass in anything, it will go ahead and set it to 60 seconds after the next run at. If you pass in something, it'll send it to however many seconds you set after the next run at. So all of that to say this. When a starting task comes in, we figure out what the next run at time is on a task, and then we add 60 seconds to that. That mm-hmm. way, we can just do a very, very simple query, run over any that have the next run at in the past, and those will all be, those will all have events fired on them to say these are these are failing or they are missed, however yep. we want to call that. So I think the logic for it is decent, and it'll make the it'll make the checks quite simple so that it's just a database query. And that was my goal because as this gets larger, you're going to want to make sure that those queries are really fast to be able to check for missing yeah. and not have to say like grab all of them and then go each over them and then determine, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever. You just want to do a query and then you're done. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where it's at right now. The other thing that you have is what you mentioned, which is like a state machine, right? So if you have a task that's in a started or pending or in progress, we're still nailing down some of the states, I suppose, of a task. So if it's pending and you have another start method or another start ping come in, obviously that's not that's not correct. Yeah. So that would then, yeah, throw an invalid state and then you'd have, you know, you'd have to figure out how you want to handle that. The good thing is most of these things that I'm talking about right now are sort of edge cases. So yeah, there we'd certainly want to account for them, but we can we can still ship a useful product without having handled every edge case. So what I'm trying to do is handle the majority of them and then we'll we'll loop back and, and kind of pick up the rest of them uh, as we yeah. go. But with yeah, that being definitely. said, like as far as the logic is concerned, like I feel like I'm getting quite close to actually having something useful. So that's good because my team needs this, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Our current yeah, dashboard we, is we a as well. freaking hot mess. <laughs> Our current dashboard is basically like, you go in and set up a job and try and mirror what it looks like in the scheduler. So you kind of say like, this runs every five minutes, this runs every minute, this runs every 10 minutes, this runs every hour, this runs every whatever. And then it will also have that same problem, which says like, if it hasn't run by 11.05 on the dot, it's it's failing. And so I get an alert and then 30 seconds later, it's not in an alert status anymore. So by the time I go to look at the dashboard, it's back to green, you know? So it's just annoying. Yeah, It's really annoying. So... We'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, get there. there. Yeah. So we got some good now, stuff going on. Can we talk though. about? Can we talk about the fact that we missed October? Yes, we can. Let's talk. about Should it. we probably update that page? We should. We probably should. I don't. I don't think we're far off. But yeah, we should probably just push it and say November. Yeah, I agree. Uh, sorry, sorry to anyone that was uh, expecting in October. Jake had his. Uh, you had your. You were working on a project that that meant you couldn't start until the first of October, and I was getting into. I work on AU stuff and yeah, so it, it, it slipped, but we've, we've been working on it. We've been plotting away as, as we've discussed in the last few episodes and hopefully we'll be able to have it in a state where we'll start playing around with it on our own projects and over the next couple of weeks. And then we'll get some people in the early access list to, to check that out as well. Um, yeah. If you're interested in a, 
Laravel specific schedule task monitoring solution. Definitely check it out at thenping.me. I think you and I discussed sending out a email, email to that week. list. Yeah. yeah. And just letting people know where we're at to those of you who aren't listening to the show or, or to clarify some of the thoughts. So we'll, we'll do that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So it is exciting. Like it's, it's like, again, we've both said this, like if at the end of the day, this literally means nothing except for we have a better tool for our teams, I'll be, I'll still be really happy with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, that's, that's kind of where it's at right now and uh, the current state of things. And there's, there's a couple different pieces of tech that I'm kind of like, not even tech, a couple different sort of patterns that I'm thinking through as far as like what would be really helpful with this. So I said today uh, that it was event sourcing seems really interesting for this mm. because there's a couple things where it's like, okay, if you've had, if you've only had one, if it, if it's only failed one time, do you need to alert? And then like, if you, you know, if you want to have customized, well, if you only, if you, you know, make sure it's failed three times in a row before you alert me or something like that, or those kind of things become easier i feel like with event sourcing because you just look at the last you know you just have these aggregate routes which you can say you know you can put all your business logic straight in there so you just record the events and then in the aggregate route you have all your rules for how you want to do that and then in the future as well you can rebuild stuff so you can say like i'm actually interested to know how many times has this failed uh or not even that how many times have i alerted somebody Uh, or how many times have you know have we had a uh, three failures in a row and then blah, 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 whatever. I don't know. It's just the the data is all there so you can rebuild everything at any point in the future. Like if there's something you don't mm-hmm. know you need yet and you're not recording it, it's like you can't know that in the future until you start recording it. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I, David Hemphill was like, just try it out. Like this is the this is the whole point of some of these side projects. It's just you haven't had a chance to do mm-hmm. that before. Just try it and see see how it feels. So we'll see. Yeah. I, I think I'll probably stay on the MVP path for now, uh, but I may yeah. I may look at it in the future. Yeah, conscious of the fact that we're already running a little bit light with it, I think changing tack to oh, use totally. event sourcing. Yeah, no um, chance. Is, not right is now. Probably not the <laughs> the wisest of ideas. But. I agree. Yeah, I think, and I mean, realistically, the easiest way forward is if you miss a ping, send an email. Yeah. Done. Yep. And and then iterate on that. I'm gonna build. In, I'm gonna build in Slack notifications right off the bat because they're so easy, and that's what our team uses. But mm. yeah, so, I mean, Slack notifications literally couldn't be simpler. It's like webhook, done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Laravel makes all of the notifications easy anyway, and we just have one notification and different channels, and off off they go. Yeah. And you have the ability to do these really cool, I mean, in Slack, you've got the really cool stuff with like those cards. Yeah. You can do attachments Mm. and like you can say resolve immediately and whatever. So like somebody could do everything without even leaving their Slack dashboard. So it's like, oh yeah, Uh, I know that's happening. Go ahead and resolve or snooze for 15 minutes Mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah. So that'd be pretty neat. Cool. Cool. Right. Anything else? We have anything else for today? I think we're pretty. Oh, ooh, uh, we do actually. We have sponsors. We do. And we've got two we things. Have... Go the ahead. logo. The logo. The logo. We we alluded to this on the previous episode, and we now have from Canico the different artwork. We've got logos and alternate logos. And if you were watching the live broadcast, you saw our little wallpaper that we've got there, or our slate screen, or whatever you want to call it. So. Uh, we'll start rolling those out across social media and you'll see the new logo or the new cover art when you, well, you will have already seen it at this point in the podcast. So yeah, let us know your feedback and, and give a shout out to Kaneko. He's at Kaneko at C-A-N-E-C-O on Twitter. Uh, as we said, he's done a bit of stuff, bit of design for different people and different projects out in the community recently as well. So you're looking for a, a good looking logo reach out to him as well he did a awesome job by the way i will say i've not shown it yeah. to anybody that wasn't like wow that's really good like it was very well thought out like so people there's so much more to a logo than just like putting text on a screen and he did a really thorough job um i mean just little details like he took the colors from our original logo and then combined them into a new color that goes into the between. So you have the north is the blue, south is the red. And then he did like this sort of purplish color for the middle. Mm-hmm. Looks super good. He created not only like a text, you know, wordmark sort of logo, but he also created a smaller avatar 
uh, logo that looks really good as well as cover yeah. art for the podcast as well as like personality sort of like slides like he just really went above and beyond and so huge shout out to Kaneko and we'll have to have him on the show sometime soon just to just as a thank you because seriously like he didn't have to do that at all and honestly the it's funny yeah. because he he did it like pro bono which I did not expect at all I was I yeah. was under the impression the whole time that we were paying him, and so he was like, "What's next steps?" So I was like, "Just invoice us, and then send over the send over the zip." And he was like, "Invoice?" I was like, "Yeah, like pay you invoice." And he's like, "Oh, I you guys aren't paying me for this." I was like, "No, we're paying you for this." And he's <laughs> like, "No, no, no, like I you know I want to do this for you guys. Like you guys have been doing this podcast for you know two years. This is like a thank you." Like I was like, "Oh my word, it's so generous!" Like I felt I really do feel bad. Like you don't want to like I don't know you you want to allow somebody to say thank you if they if that's what their wishes you know what i mean but at the same time i feel i don't know i don't know it's so i'm, I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> we'll have to send him something we need to send him like what we probably need to do is like make him a mug a t-shirt and like some sticker and just send him to him right just you know <laughs> say, to say thank you because he did yeah. such a great job yeah. so thank you very much thank you thank you yeah. thank you it looks awesome and i'm super excited it's gonna be great in addition, we have, of course, our wonderful sponsors. So this week, sponsoring the show is CTO Sumo. They are our big sponsor this week. So CTO Sumo is... CTO Sumo connects your startup with the right fractional CTO. So what these guys do is they basically allow you to hire out CTO services, which stands for Chief Technical Officer. So these guys provide agile technical project management so they can uh, help align your business strategy, which somebody who can come in and kind of give you the technology stack side of things. They can do mentorship and help with hiring. They can do software architecture and development. They can audit all your current code bases and take a look at seeing if everything's using best practices or catch inefficient code, protect your reputation, make sure that you know, you're not going to have something crash and damage your reputation really. Uh, so yeah, they, this is a, a great team and this website I think has recently been updated as well. It looks really good. We have uh, a couple other people to thank as well, but uh, so we can thank Andreas, uh, Joe from Work Vivo, JP Davey, CTO Sumo, and Rasmus. So those are all of our sponsors. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring the show. Really, really appreciate it. And then we'll we'll wrap this bad boy up. So this is episode sixty-five. Is that right? Mm-hmm. If you like show, if you like the show, you can find show notes for it at northmeetssouth.audio/slash sixty-five. Feel free to hit us up on Twitter at Michael Bennett or at Michael Bennett. Can you believe that? That's amazing. At Michael Dorinda at Jacob Bennett or at North South Audio. Any questions or comments? And then of course, if you like to read us up and your podcatcher of choice, or share us with your friends. We always appreciate that. All right. It is yeah. midnight. I'm going to bed. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. Eli oh, just woke up, so I'm going to go uh, and do it with I've him. I've been watching my little dude on my camera here, and he's finally asleep. <laughs> finally asleep. <laughs> Crashed out. He finally passed nice. out. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks so much for Sweet. hanging out with us. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye. See you. Bye.